What time is it? 8 30. <laughs> latest edition of the Livingston Experience podcast. We're in the middle of the second round of the playoffs and I'm joined once again by a much more upbeat Darren Hill after the Bucks came back today and even their series with the Brooklyn Nets at 2-2. How's the mood, uh, Daz, amongst the Bucks fans online and, uh, and within Australia, within yourself? Within about 48 hours, Daz, we um, took our white towels that we had thrown into the center of the ring, scrambled to the center of the ring, ran back outside the ring and started waving on top of our heads, Daz. <laughs> so it's, that's pretty much the whiplash effect of uh, NBA playoff basketball. So alive and kicking, uh, alive and kicking. Well, we're not going to get too far in that series now. We'll, we'll leave that sort of towards the back end of the podcast. Uh, but we want to start really by looking back on the first round and taking our Livingston moments uh, from the first round of the playoffs, the, the, the moments that had us up off the couch and excited. I'll be, I've enjoyed those playoffs much more days than I thought I would. I mean, the first question without notice, I guess, is how have you rated the playoffs so far from your enjoyment uh, perspective? Oh, Daz, I'm, I'm, it breaks That's my hard heart. for you, I guess, isn't it? It, it breaks my heart, right? Because we part of what bonds us in was Daz and Daz and Livingston, right, is that um, enjoy the game, right? Respect the, respect the game, enjoy the game, uh, try to be a, a little micro voice against the ocean of, the, you know, this, the narrative that the regular season doesn't matter, right? We've tried to do that and appreciate it. And for probably a whole bunch of contextual reasons, pandemic reasons, shortened season reasons, shortened off-season reasons, all those sorts of things, the gap between the quality of the regular season and the playoffs has probably never been more stark to me, right? Mm-hmm. It's as stark as ever, if not even more exaggerated. So the quality of play, Daz, is just a, a palpable step up, the injuries notwithstanding. So enjoyment and engagement to see teams playing two-way basketball is great. I've quite loved it. What about you? Well, for me, it's been, I think that one of the big things has been the crowds coming back. And yeah, that that just creates an automatic urgency, I guess, and, and an automatic intensity. And that was one of my Livingston moments from the first round was particularly the crowds at Madison Square Garden and the crowd in Phoenix. And Phoenix probably not noted, I don't think, over the years as one of the more rabid sort of fan bases. But I'll tell you, Daz, they were as energised as anyone in that first round knocking off the Lakers. Uh, and of course... Madison Square Garden, those first two games where Trey Young comes in and just rips their heart out uh, and becomes the sort of new villain for that fan base. I think he was modelling his his behaviour and his play on Reggie Miller uh, from the to, sort of mid-90s. Yeah. They would, that was some of the highlights. And that's just, as I said, it, it energises you as a fan to watch it and you, and you feel there's some stakes. You know, it's hard to sort of get the sense that there's anything at stake and that there's any urgency when there's no fans in the building. And I mean, I think we were, we were very lucky to get the playoffs that we got last year in the bubble with no fans. And I think it was, it was an interesting yeah. sort of contrast and just the style of play and, and the play of Jamal Murray and the play of LeBron and AD in, in the bubble was absolutely fantastic. And, and we were privileged to watch that. But I think 
getting it back to the gr the grind of the playoffs and and the the pressure that you feel i think it's a totally different type of game that we're seeing with fans in in the stadiums in this playoffs and i think it's been a real highlight seeing the fans come back yeah of course that's a great point and the well for most anyway we're going to find out you know uh in L la where they still don't have fans back the cardboard cutouts still going on here in this um, sort of a jumping around a bit here, yeah. But then this well, Clippers, let's be fair, jazz Clippers series, fans right? yeah. are cardboard cutouts even when they're in the building. <laughs> Levingston moment, be gone. <laughs> Look, that's, that's fair enough. Uh, it's all corporate, corporate board, board corporate types, I suppose, aren't they? But yeah, I, mean, I think you're, you're teasing out that the you know certainly saw it today both ways. You know the Denver. Um, the Denver crowd appreciation and send off for Jokic, albeit he left in dubious fashion, which we'll get to. But um, the Phoenix fans traveled really well. You know, it's not a big journey from Phoenix up to up to Denver, but they had quite a contingency there in Denver. Um, probably no doubt saw a lot of season ticket holders didn't gobble up their seats in Denver, and the Phoenix fans swooped in and and gave quite a um, quite a send off to Chris Paul into the Western Conference Finals, but. The point is that the crowd is definitely having – it's definitely – it's an impact. You can't ignore it. There's an emotional – there's an absolutely emotional component, which is – it's real. It's absolutely real. I'm convinced it's real. I think it went um, both – it goes both ways too because having that crowd presence, it seemed like it put more pressure on the Knicks than what they wanted and sort of, you know, I did wonder heading into that first round how Randall's game would – translate to the playoffs and as it turned out it didn't translate well but you just sort of felt the Knicks weren't ready for that moment whereas Atlanta were and, and having that big crowd maybe was a bit too much pressure uh, for them to handle at this stage in their development as a team. That's a really interesting point yeah it's, it's the who's got the personality the moxie and the confidence to rise up to that MSG pressure and the it was absolutely not Julius Randle or Frank Nilakina or Alfred Prayton or whomever it was it was Trey effing young. And that's exactly what the crowd called him. Wasn't it? That was the, the one. <laughs> I did, love the, did you see the Trey is balding uh, chant when he was at the free trade line? <laughs> I did. Well, they start that for Kevin Durant as well. That'd be funny. <laughs> Although he's a bit older, but uh, yeah. And the Trey is balding and the, the Trey haircut memes were flying around after that. So you cannot deny of take the LA fan bases and you can all do respect Los Angeles. You could, you could have a San Andreas fault could crack open and all the LA fans would fall into a, a center of the earth and we wouldn't miss it. We would miss them for a minute, but there's something about New York fans, Daz, isn't there? There's something about the, just the, the voraciousness, the brutality that F Trey young, that seems to go from two people to 22,000 people in an instant. It's almost, you know, English premier league football match kind of energy there. So well, yeah, that's not the energy series. that you see in Philly where they're pouring popcorn on Russell Westbrook's head and the Utah oh, fans who are doing yeah. the racial um, slurs and Again. then the idiot that threw the bottle of water in Boston. It's not. It's it's true what we sort of say, sports hate. That there's an element of it's all tongue-in-cheek and at the end of the game, we'll all go away and you, know, you can sort of have a bit of a laugh about it or whatever it might be. I yeah. mean, I'm sure they're disappointed, but... You know, there's not there's not that hard edge to it that there is with some fan base. You go, you're actually towing the line and and going a bit over it. I think it's it's and that's what we love about it. it, it there is that playful element of it with, when you've gone through from Jordan to Reggie Miller 
you know, and, and even to Alonzo Mourning, etc. And now, of course, Trey Young, uh, the, the new villain. And I hope it's the first of many uh, big matches that we see between Atlanta and, and New York in the, in the near future. Yeah, that'd be, a, you know, kind of a random, not exactly franchises with big histories, other than obviously the Madison Square Garden legacy, you know, Atlanta versus New York. But yeah, there's something was born there. Something was born there for sure. So hope that lights a fire and, you know, I, since that series has ended, I think Coach Tibbs was Coach of the Year, if I'm not mistaken. I think he finished number one, didn't he, Daz, over Monty Williams? He did, yep. So was... there's some, yeah. So I won't, I won't lie. I, I again, I, I'm, I don't have, I'm, I should be more respectful, but I don't have a lot of time for Los Angeles Lakers fans. I don't find much intelligent discourse there, but I, I don't mind the Knicks fans because you're right. It, it stops short. Again, less of my memories. He's got this recency bias here. It just it stops short of that, yeah, that kind of Boston entitlement or that Philly kind of crossing the line kind of stuff, as you hinted at. So that was a surprisingly fun series. And um, I was definitely, I think you and I were probably in the same place in that one. I thought that was going to be an Atlanta and five series and good on him for, for taking TCB and given that what was a, what a boomerang franchise that's been, Honda huh? has to go from, you know, putting all this, what we would have said, no doubt, I could probably rewind this eight, nine months. And we said the overreaching ownership, putting all the pressure on the general manager there, Schlenk in Atlanta, and perhaps accelerating this timeline and then moving in, moving their chips in too soon and having the weird Bogdanovich situation and so on and so forth and spending all this money on Gallinari and signing Rajon Rondo. And just like, what the flying fuck are they doing? And to, to have them just a proof positive is how how much a team can change inside of a season. Yeah. Or I don't know about you Des. I thought Atlanta was on the cliff of like, man, if this season goes off the rails, you could have, you could have a serious, there could be a massive blow up there. Right. Does Nate McLuhan work? Is Schlenk going to lose his job? Are they going to bring in someone old to accelerate the process? They're going to, it could have harbinger for all kinds of change, but you know, they got, yeah, they got healthy. They got Bogdanovich into the rotation. They got Gallo playing off the bench, and they had themselves a pretty memorable first series win. And and Trey, you know, Trey handled that really well, didn't you? The um, kind of playing off the crowd, you know, kind of flexing his in the way he was flexing. And and again, everyone just had fun with it. Everyone had fun with it. So good moment. Well, if for you want to, if you want to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. And he certainly did. Yeah. In the first round. Yeah. Uh, he's, yeah. He's hitting a bit of it. I think we're seeing his ceiling at this point in his career in this second sure. round when they've thrown Thibault and, and Simmons at him. And that's, you know, arguably the, the two best uh, perimeter defenders in the league. So he needs some teammates to step up. They haven't quite stepped up yet. Uh, there's only 2 1 Philly, but you kind of feel like that, that series is yeah. shifting yeah. as well. But I, yeah. I agree. I thought, and I mean, it's telling. Trey Young gets to the second round before Luka Doncic, so all the people that want to, uh, the Doncic stands out there, and certainly it still seems that Doncic yeah. is the better player of the two, but in terms of the way those franchises are built at the moment and the success, the likely success of either franchise, I mean, you'd say Atlanta have a better chance of making the finals before the Mavericks at this point in time. Well, that's a great segue. I mean, um, I think if you're talking about first round kind of reflections and that's a that's a really interesting storyline, right? Which is the who you know teams who passed over Lucas story, obviously being Trey Young, Trey Young number one, and um, the first person you think of, right, because of the trade, and then mm-hmm. obviously DeAndre Ayton also had a sensational first round series. So that's been kind of really interesting to see this franchise as much 
and perhaps a lot rightly maligned or at least questioned for their their choices in passing over Luca. And both those franchises, I think, would absolutely hand on heart say they're as they sit there today, very happy with their choice. As we've seen Aiton mature and and play his role, and as he's, you were just saying, Trey do his thing. And whereas Dallas, boy, that sure was a um, that was a fun series, though, wasn't it? That that Dallas Clippers series. And Luca had them just on the edge, right? They had them right on the edge. They needed just something. They needed someone to step up and do something. Um, and that's where I think talking about the Atlanta whiplash effect, boy, I think we might see a, a real questioning um, in going on and introspection going on in Dallas, don't you think? With Man, do they regret that Seth Curry trade for Josh Richardson and, and of course, everything related to um, – you know, acquiring Zinger, who's been, uh, I said a little bit uh, harshly, you know, he's been a really skilled Sean Bradley, you know, in well, that series. And I almost spoke don't... about this at the time of the Zinger trade. I mean, one of the hardest things in the NBA is when you get a guy in his rookie year and you go, this guy's a, a potential superstar. And Doncic was so good so quickly. Now you're on the clock, right? You've got seven years to get this right. Or this guy's going to put in a request and bolt to LA for AZ or wherever it might be. So, yeah. and I think you saw that pressure with the Mavs, whereas Atlanta have been able to go, you know, Trey Young comes out in his, the summer league and stinks, and everyone says he's a, he's a bust. He started slowly. So, Atlanta didn't feel yeah. that same pressure. They can build organically. Dallas would feel like we're on the clock. Oh my God, Zinger's available. Let's, let's turn him up. And, and then you're locked in. To that team for four or five years, and you know, there was always the risk that Porzingis it was not going to be the player he was again. You know, back in the early days when he was in New York, and he did look like he was going to be a star player in his own right. He's just not that player anymore, and he's not going to be that player if you look at him. Um, and I mean, I think I think you're selling Sean Bradley short. To, to compare him at the moment, at least well, Bradley was a hell of a defender. But that's like, that's fine. Yeah, mm. that's that's the irony is that that that's what you'd hope Zinger could still be, and he just can't, can't or won't. I'm not sure which one. But I go the relationship there, which I joked online with some some Twitter people um, around, kind of people I knew who were uh, very anti that Curry for Richardson trade. I was actually more bold. I quite liked that trade. I thought it made sense. I thought. I thought they could substitute and find enough shooting around him that you get that rugged kind of off ball on ball secondary playmaker like Josh Richardson. I thought actually quite, that makes a lot of sense next to Luca, but he hasn't stepped up. And sadly what's happened, right? Is Kristaps Porzingis has picked up the Seth Curry role Daz, whether it's by design or by default, because he just cannot have any, he doesn't have any faith in his lower body to bang. He's just too slow in the in the post, right? He just can't decision make and and pivot and, and make decisions the way I think we saw him making those first couple of years in New York, right? You could high post stuff and he could kind of turn around and lift over. He just does not you can just tell he doesn't have the confidence or the or the physical structure to do that stuff from the post anymore. And he's relegated, the seven foot two guy relegated to spot up shooting. I think, wow, spot up the seven two guy who you paid a couple of first round picks for and paying whatever $30 million a year to, to be a spot up shooter and not a knockdown one at that, man, that's, that's a rough spot for Dallas. So wickedly, wickedly entertaining basketball, though, going back to the, 
back to the first round. I, I don't, I know it's not exactly your two favorite teams and you know, I have no love lost for, for the for Kawhi Leonard, but Holy shit. Was that quality basketball teams trading haymakers and back and forth and the stars, you know, leading their teams. But that was probably the, if I'd have to go back, probably the most enjoyable that one plus Phoenix LA, probably the two most enjoyable first round series. Oh, so, um, no, I, I think I, I much preferred the Dallas Port. Uh, sorry, Denver Portland was was uh, to me. Yeah, even though the stakes, I'd like some defense though. I mean, the, the, the problem like, I think too with Denver Portland, you knew when you were watching it, you're like, neither of those teams are going past the second round. Yeah, but like, man, that's yeah. it was fun to watch at while it was happening in the moment. But I yeah. do the funny thing about that that Clippers series was, and I was texting it to you in real time. I said, what the, I said, Kawhi Leonard's. Uh, yeah, this reputation he has as this defensive stopper. I said, it's completely overblown. Like, he's sitting there for the first five games of that series, basically watching Doncic just absolutely torch them and take them apart while he's playing that sort of free safety type role within their defense. And then game six, he goes, right, I'm going to take Doncic. And even though he didn't stop him in terms of Doncic still got his, got his points and put up numbers he's always going to put up numbers but he had to work a hell of a lot harder for his points and he could at least slow him down from the point of view of defense and then he does it at the offensive end where just you felt like Kawhi could just get whatever spot he wanted whether it was three or the long twos or to the bucket and to score and the Dallas couldn't just refuse to throw a double team at him which made me that was the one that got me. I just thought, particularly in game six, when Kawhi's just picking your part and you go, get the ball out of his hands for a couple of possessions. You know, see if Paul George can make a shot. See if, uh, you know, Reggie Williams or whoever it might be, or so Reggie Jackson, whoever it might be, can make a shot at that point. It was all just Kawhi and he just didn't miss. And then all of a sudden, game six is gone. And game seven, I think the Clippers were always favourites to finally um, win Get the first game, and yeah. win a home game in the, in the entire series. And they did ended up doing it pretty comfortably uh, in game seven. So a lot of questions to me for the for Dallas. I think the, the thing on the Curry trade, they did draft a guy called Tyrell Terry, who they were sort of saying, this kid's going to come out and contribute straight away. And uh, they got absolutely nothing out of him. Um, 11 games all off the bench, you know, five minutes a game in those games. So all sort of garbage time stuff, mainly played in the G League. Um, so that that's one, I guess, to watch. Maybe he is one, a guy that develops uh, in the future and they can pick up some yeah. of that shooting that they lost with Seth Curry. But they'd certainly be very, very concerned um, about seeing it. But I do, I do think on the flip side, it was the Clippers would have, would have looked at that and thought, yep, Kawhi Leonard, but gee, Paul George didn't show up again. And, and showed up finally, I think, in Game 3 of the Utah series, but they'd be concerned yet again about the, the sort of fade-out of Paul George in the in the NBA Plus, which has been a recurring theme, unfortunately, across his whole career. Yeah, and, and that's why, just going back a little bit, you know, to the, that Clippers, the Clippers, and I think, um, I forget who's mentioned it, but just talking about, like, Interestingly, with a team with Kawhi and Paul George, and I agree with you about Kawhi's defense, and I agree with you about his offense as well. There's his defense is not – he's not up there at the let's say the Simmons and Tybal level anymore. Um, it's still fantastic, right? But it's still not – Well, he not picks his moments. He, he does, spots. yeah. And, yeah. and that's, I guess, 
a sign of a maturing game and he's, he's getting yeah. a bit older. Um, yeah. I think he's. I think it's a bit ridiculous how much he picks his spots, to be honest. And particularly, this is a guy now that, that basically just turns up to the arena well, and says, do I feel like playing tonight or not? You, yeah, it's exactly where I was going, which is the... Because Ty Lu, right? Ty Lu is already in this series um, just tinkering and trying lineups and trying different things. And it's Terrence Mann one night and Zubac the next night. And Reggie Jackson's there every night. And just, it just seems to be almost like that Dwayne Casey-esque, you know, we saw just kind of trying anything without real, real strategic intent around it. And I said, I just got myself to thinking, right, because you could do that. If Ty Lue kind of grew up and found his coaching chops around LeBron James, you can do that around LeBron James because LeBron James, no matter what he's doing, is going to control both ends of the floor, no matter what, right? So you can kind of let the coach kind of tinker and play options and try different things out and experiment inside of a series, and if not inside of a game. But Kawhi's not that type of guy. Kawhi doesn't control both ends the way LeBron does, and Paul George certainly doesn't. Paul George loves running off screens and shooting beautiful jump shots, but Paul George doesn't love much more than that anymore, right? Paul George is not the Indiana Pacers defender we used to see, which is borderline. It was probably a half step beneath what Kawhi was, you know, back then. So that's why I'm also seeing the Clippers um, I think that I think that Clippers Dallas here is more about Dallas running out of gas than it was Clippers finding an answer, right? I think, and, and as you rightly pointed, I think it was Dallas failing to just double down and, and take the ball to Kawhi's hands inexplicably, especially in that fourth quarter of Game Six, inexplicably. But um, that's why I got myself wondering about the Clippers and Ty Lue, and you see themselves, but are they down two one, down two one to Utah as well, mm-hmm. right? And I go. A lot of tinkering going on, Daz. You don't want to be doing Mike Budenholzer-level tinkering, you know, in the middle of a series. So um, Serge Ibaka's out, and you're getting so much production from Reggie Jackson. I just, I don't know. I guess I see that as a positive, but I'm my confidence should be up on the Clippers based on how they persevered against about Dallas fading. And I'm, I don't know. I'd still be tipping Utah to, to take to take the Clippers out in, in probably what's going to be a long series, though. Well, Donovan Mitchell exited game three, too, with a right ankle injury. So he says he'll be ready oh, for game four. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you wonder, is he going to be 100%? They're still missing Mike Conley as well. So injuries have been, if you want to sort of throw a negative in there with the players so far, certainly injuries have been part of that. I mean, do you think it's a coincidence that we've already seen, so the top four from last year's bubble already gone? So three of them went in the first round. And, and Denver went out today in pretty meek fashion in the second round, really tired-looking uh, team, and they'd already lost Jamal Murray, of course. I mean, is that a coincidence, do you think? I mean, was that sort of predictable that with such a short off-season, straight back into it again, that you're going to see these teams? And Miami, to me, looked very tired. Boston never really got going all season, uh, and, and we just sort of touched on uh, the, the Denver side of things as well. Was that a surprise to you? So, or looking back, should we have expected that? I think it's, I don't know. I think this is post hoc rationalization. That's maybe a fancy way of saying looking in the rear view mirror, you know, hindsight 2020 sort of thing. Cause you just take each team on its own merits, right. Is, you know, LeBron wasn't clearly wasn't a hundred percent. Their off season pickups were significant pickups, which, you know, many debated the quality of, of their off season. I was wrong, right. Chris Vernon was correct. I was wrong. Like I thought those pickups were brilliant for Harrell and Schroeder and 
They proved not to be brilliant. And these are young guys in early middle part of their career. Right. And these guys weren't playing, you know, 38 minutes a night for 72 games Daz. So I go to LA and then, you know, Anthony day to day Davis was my new favorite nickname ever. <laughs> you know, I don't mean it. And he just, you know, he's banged up. Right. And LeBron's a bit older and LeBron didn't have that. You know, when Anthony's Davis is gone, he's just right, throwing the ball around the court. He's got no one, no one there to help him carry the load. Is that related to a short off season or not? Eh, I can't say no, but I think it's a bigger factor of who they do have on the court. Miami wasn't working all season. Everyone thought Miami would have a flip would flip a switch there was no switch it just didn't happen and i have no idea why that is but there is a lot of underperformance around the place and again key losses on that team with crowder and i know you laugh but in the buck series they missed a guy like olenic like to pull brook out of the paint where they got mm. murdered they got murdered right Gidala is no longer he's no longer an important piece to a, a contending team right so miami just in tyler hero kind of regressed and you know, and so I go, eh, you know, they had their own reasons just for not doing it. And Boston had devastating injury, Jalen Brown. That's it. You know, you lose, you lose your number two from a dynamic duo. Forget it. He got hurt. Is that related to the short off season? I don't know. And then Denver, you know, lost Jamal Murray and did this best they could with, you know, Flotsam and Jetsam and Campazzo and Campuzzo and Morris and a bit of Barton here and there and whatever they could throw at out in the backcourt around the MVP and they just ran out of, they ran out of weapons and ran out of gas. And again, in their sort of argument against it being related to the short off season is they were 13 and five after Murray went out. Yes, it's a regular season, but you know, they, they didn't have the wheels fall off. I just think they ran out of, they ran out of weapons. They lost about what you thought they would lose in the second round. So, so it's a, it's a fair question. I just hope that doesn't cloud. um, I'm sure it will. If a non Brooklyn, non-LA team wins the title, you know, with the national media will make a, a hullabaloo about 72 days of an off season. But um, yeah, I think the season itself, right. is probably more of an issue than the shortened off season is that, you know, these 72 games and what was a pretty, pretty frenetic pace. Um, but we'll see, right. We go, we've had normal seasons before that you name me a playoff series, Daz, that wasn't affected by a major injury. I'd, perhaps I'm misremembering, but the, whether that's a Chris Paul hamstring or KD and clay going down, or those are the most recent ones, obviously, but injuries, this is just what happens. Yeah. I'll, so I'll be interested to look back and see how often is it that the top four from the previous season, are gone by the second round, you know, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and the last team that was standing was swept out. That, that'd be the interesting thing. I think to go back and have a look, because these are just unusual that you've got the top four teams from one year and the next year, they're just, yeah. you know, here we are in the second, you know, halfway through the second round, they're all uh, gone. I still think that the bigger issue is parity, Daz, where the Bucks got markedly better, the Jazz got markedly better and stronger, and they just gelled this year, right? The Suns obviously got markedly better with Chris Paul and, and the development of Book and Aiton. So I know that you can't, you got to look at both sides of the ledger. It wasn't just the top four, you know, and the fatigue or, you know, the, the mental load of having a shorter off season is that the teams, and that's what made this regular season quite interesting, if not sub spectacular basketball was that, yeah, the parody, mm. but then, you know, we saw these teams who were middle of the pack, you know, kind of middle of the pack teams kind of rise up this year into two seeds and one seed. So, well, the Suns, I think were in many ways, the big story of the first round, like, and, and we spoke sure. about them in our sort of introductory podcast, looking at the plus, 
And as I said to you at the time, I was quietly confident they could get past the Lakers. And part of the reason I was confident is I didn't think that AD would hold up for the entire series. And I wasn't confident LeBron was 100%. And that's exactly how it bore out yeah. going in. But yeah. I think even more impressive than that, and I, I said this to you sort of halfway through the season, I picked the Suns to come out of the West, and I'm, I'm sticking with that prediction at the moment. The development of Aiton and Booker, and Booker in particular, was just outstanding uh, in in that first round series against the Lakers at both ends. Like I'm not saying he's a defensive stopper, but he's by no means a defensive survivor. Like he can be part of a really effective uh, Phoenix defense. Off of Bridges was excellent. Uh, Crowder was just outstanding. I mean, Utah must be looking at this version of Jay Crowder and saying that's not the Jay Crowder we got uh, when we needed him. And this is a guy that's just continues the work and he's going a perfect fit for that team. How excited were you to sort of see, you know, Aiton take on AD and sort of go with him to a certain extent uh, and then really sort of kick on from there. But Booker, when that series was there to be won, Devin Booker just went out there and ripped LA's hearts out, stomped on them on the floor and then just walked off. I mean, what he did to LA in game six was, was really impressive to me. Oh, so many things in there. Yeah, so for the meta around Phoenix, obviously that being my you know, my second favorite team my whole life, you know, there's a bit of fanboy, you know, kind of happy for them. And I was I was um, uh, very, very cautiously optimistic about Chris Paul's endurance, like most of us were, right? I thought it was a, a very low-risk, smart pickup. But I thought, right, is, is he, can he hold up in a season like this at his age 36? That, my goodness, was a resounding yes and still continues to be as they've just gotten to the finals here of the Western Conference. So the Chris Paul is, the, is where the, I think that story begins, doesn't it? Um, just the way he has brought that entire team together. And to Aiton, right, the, uh, what you and I suspected, what we, many of us suspected is that Chris Paul is going to bring um, his role to perfect clarity for him. He's going to, because Chris Paul is so goddamn consistent and so damn smart, is he's going to be able to dictate and coach Aiton during the games, and that therefore, right, the muscle memory, the repetitions, the consistency, you know, you know where the ball's coming and how it's going, you know, when to seal, you know, when to crash, you know, when to you know, pick and pop, you know, when to, you just, you'll be coached in real time, in real games. And you can see his confidence rising and rising and rising. And he stayed true to his game, which I liked about Aiton, right? I've certainly seen firsthand in Milwaukee where Giannis doesn't stay true to his game. When you're forced and under pressure, these young guys, you, you do weird shit. Right, you try stuff you're not good at, and you lose your confidence, and then you get confused. Right, it's part of that that winning and losing sort of experience. And so I was so happy to see Aiton just stay in his lane, play his role. Right, and that's what he did every night. Wasn't he like seven for eleven from the floor, mm. six for nine from the floor, five for five from the line, fourteen boards, two blocked every night. You didn't see him go five for eighteen and start shooting threes and moving around the floor. You just didn't see it. And so I go, that for me is Monty Williams and Chris Paul, like shoot, just like bringing structure and clarity and, and optimization. And so that was my two biggest things of excitement were that. And then of course, book books take it to the next level and you're bang on. I'd have to say the same thing even about Kyrie Irving. I'll be honest with you is Booker was battling. He battles on defense, Daz. Now is that just, he's always had it and now he's got something to play for. And so that energy comes out probably you know, is it coaching? Probably. Is it, you know, Chris Paul? Probably all of the above. But that I was noticeable, right? Or that was against Schroeder or occasionally on LeBron or 
you know, whoever he was chasing. Um, well, even on, his strength on, to play through contact going to the yeah, basket on offense. Yeah. That just jumped out at me. I thought he was playing like he was six six at times. You just look at him going, well, where is this guy been? Yeah, I think he's been playing for a 19-win team, Daz. That's, that's, that's what happens, I guess, mm. right? And, and again, I think maybe that's, you know, again, I, I give credit to Kyrie, and that's not where I'll, I want to keep straying back there, but he's also fucking scrapping and battling and chesting up against Drew Holiday and stuff. But anyway, I digress. That's that's not the question. But love to see Phoenix, you know, Milwaukee, put the <laughs> goofball, let's just call him goofball, Milwaukee Twitter fans are still upset about letting Tory Craig go, who's been phenomenal for Phoenix, like a really integral part to have both Crowder and Craig, right? These switchy, rangy, you know, Craig can't shoot like Crowder can, but man, he's been a really important part of the rotation in Phoenix as well. So it's just all coming together, Daz. And they got health, they've got the coaching, and they got this on-court leader who's just 37 points, Daz, in a game four closeout on the road. 37 from Chris Ball today. I don't know, fast forwarding to round two, but just on, he killed just unbelievable. I mean, he just destroyed the like when the Nuggets put Campazo on him, he was you could just see it in his face. Oh, he, he was laughing. insulted. <laughs> yeah, not put this guy on me. And oh, really? unfortunately for the Nuggets, they didn't really have any other options. Uh, no, I know. But yeah. it was yeah, it, it was just not a fair fight. Whenever yeah. he was on him. But back to your question, I'll finish my final thought on the round one as I, well, I look back at that and you just kind of go, they would have had every reason to fold, right, against a LeBron team with or without Anthony Davis. But they had the culture, they had the, whatever, the foot on the throat, the kill switch. They just did not let L.A. up off the mat. You know, um, Schroeder and Kuzma and uh, Montrez Harrell just didn't make major contributions, which they desperately, desperately needed, you know, just to buy some time you know, till AD you know, got right. And it just, they ran out of time. So credit to Phoenix for not letting them up off the mat where I think half the planet right, we're anticipating, you know, a LeBron-esque uh, resurrection. But, um, but perhaps to the broader point, I, maybe I'll, I will give some, we heard the same thing from Jokic today, which I'm drawing a correlation, just his frustration when, did you see the foul he committed? No, his frustration see. and exhaustion boiled over. He, he wound up and just swung you know, at campaign, he hit the ball, but he just wound up, swung, followed through and cracked him on the face and got a flagrant two and ejected in what was a five point game and late in the third quarter. And um, he just, it was all, and they'd said before the game, he'd already kind of hit the point after they lost and went down 3-0. He just even said he was mentally and he was gone. He was so exhausted, had nothing left. I think we saw the same thing from LeBron James, if I'm not reading too much into his body language, but I think LeBron had just didn't have what he, especially LeBron James knows exactly what it would needed to take to drag that team, you know, across Phoenix into the next round. I think LeBron knew it just wasn't there. He's had plenty of years like this in his career where he's, you know, put entire franchises and rosters on his back. And I think he just didn't have it. Is that related to the short off season? Sure. I'm sure it is, but mm. I think it's just as much related to the, caliber of the guys around him in the in the context well so. it reminded me of his last season in, in Cleveland when I, I remember talking about it in the the, the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics and he was just pleading for a teammate to hit a shot someone do something I can't yeah. do this on my own Jeff Green came out in game seven and started making some shots 
well, they didn't even have a Jeff Green. Like, they had just no one making plays at all. Like, KCP's yeah. banged up. Schroeder's just not playing very well. Drummond's got benched, and he was just looking around. There's just no one there anymore for LeBron, and he's not, you know... Yeah. He, I don't know, but at, at what stage of his career he would have been able to put this term when he's back against the team as, as competent as what the Suns were playing as well. So, uh, but certainly not this stage of his career is he capable of, of doing that and leading him no, past. Yeah. Um, I think the interesting thing, final point on Jokic as well, like well-deserved MVP, he played every game of this season. It's going to be interesting to see how they manage his minutes and how they manage his play going forward because this is now the second season in a row where he's worn down. I mean, he was a shadow of himself in last year's Western Conference Finals against the Lakers after two seven-game series, it should be noted, in the first two rounds. Another long series this year in the first round, and then he wears down in the second round. You know, is is there, you know, there I say, this sort of rest thing, does? I mean, I, I think there's, there's probably something to It's probably more relevant in a season like the one we've just seen, where there's a hell of a lot of games in a short period of time. Uh, but I am going to be interested to see what how Denver manage his minutes and his the number of games of his plays uh, going forward now that he's won that MVP because the next step in his development is trying to win a championship and, and you don't want to see him wear down the way I think he has in the last couple of seasons in the plot. I think it's just something to keep an eye on. Yeah, we'll see. You know, I think that's a very fair question. And But there, there are guys, right? They're like, again, don't often give credit there, but for many, many years, James Harden, right, played, played everybody game. You know, Russ, uh, Russ less so, but guys like Harden and Giannis can pretty much play 80 games and, you know what I mean, and kind of see it through. So some guys are just built that well, way. Well, I mean, it's one of the things about DeRozan. He's obviously not on the, the superstar DeRozan, level. Yeah. But yeah. DeRozan never misses games. Like, he only yeah. missed a few games this year because of uh, his father sadly passing away. Other than that, the guy's just never injured. You know, and sometimes your best ability is availability, you know, and, and so it, yeah. it does bring a certain... I guess it raises the floor of the Spurs in, in the example I'm talking about with, with DeRozan. But obviously with some of these other guys, um, yeah. it, it takes you to the next level and, and, and into the upper echelons of, of the Western Conference, as it were, and, for Harden. And, and I don't have the... It's a, it's a fair comp, and I, I don't have the data, obviously, but I, you just you think about a guy like Jokic, where, yes, of course, big men tend to have a little bit more injury history, but what what Jokic doesn't do, right? Which is like Kyrie today or a John Morant or a LeBron is like, he's not up in the air mm. all the time landing on guys. And I don't know how many lower, lower body injuries come from up in the air type stuff, but I reckon it's a fair few. And he's just, he just doesn't put his body in harm's way. He's getting physically banged and, you know, his feet <laughs> barely leave the ground as right. He kind of shuffles up and down the court as fast he can. And, and he's just a bloody mastermind. Um, you know, from the post and his decision-making. So of all the guys in the league, you'd put money on and kind of go, he, he's one where he does, he does, he doesn't have that strain on the joints. Let's put it that way. Mm. The way that a lot of the other guys do, even like an Embiid or a Giannis as it were. But um, well, anyway, yeah. before days we go to the second round, we really want to focus on this Nets uh, Bucks second round matchup, because I think that's the most fascinating of mm. all four. But the, my final Livingston moment, I saw, I think a top five playoff game ever between the Nuggets and the Blazers in game five of that series. And it was a yeah. game that peered over, and I watched it live because I just sort of had it on in the background. And it appeared over, and then I'd look up and go, what? Portland have just gone this crazy run. 
then Denver have pulled away again. Then Portland will go on another crazy run. And at the end of the game, like Dame Lillard just caught fire. At one stage, Dame Lillard was 12 of 16 from three. <laughs> and he just could not miss. And then Jokic down the other end is just picking them apart every single time. Some of those beautiful passes that you've ever seen, including the one that ended up winning the game over to Michael Porter in the corner. Uh, it was just absolutely fascinating to watch. Some poor coaching, some poor defence, some brilliant shot making. Just one of those games that, unfortunately, as I said at the outset, not a lot of stakes involved because you always felt these teams would, would flame out in the second round. But by gee, for a first for a first round series, it was really entertaining. But that game really stood out to me, double overtime before Denver got away with it. And, and, two, and, and, and two shots, I might add, two late threes by Dame Lillard descended into overtime and then double overtime as well. What did you catch of that and, and what did you make of that, that battle, the Dame versus Jokic battle in the first round? Yeah, I watched uh, I, uh, only after the fact, so I knew the result, but I went back and watched the fourth quarter and the overtimes and it was it was every bit as fun as you said, Daz. It was, it was almost like <laughs> um, Denver, Utah last year right, where it was Murray versus Mitchell and that, you know, shoot out of the OK Corral style. Um, it was that level of fun. And to be honest, that was actually more about Dame in my estimation, right, because he was getting no support from anybody again. He was kind of like the Luca of that team at the end of the season. And C.J. McConnell just was a wilting flower, and they just got, man, that's another team. We're just so frustrated to see changes coming. But Covington not giving him really much of anything, and he's just a one-man bloody show, Daz. Mm. And... um um, yeah, so how a guy like that could just carry an entire team on his back and hit big shot after big shot after big shot after big shot is remarkable. They show, I forget the stats now, but you probably would have seen something. His crunch time, oh his if crunch time effective field goal percentage is something like 69% or something. And you know, he's not dunking. No. It's, it's, it was, it was that high. It was something like. 16 for 28 in crunch time right and like we're ridiculous ridiculous that'd be crazy for you know wilt chamberlain you know or kareem you know, underneath the who but he's 16 for 28 or something like that so that was a lot of fun that was a well, lot the, of fun. the amazing was... thing about that game is he didn't shoot the ball like it's not like he shot it 40 times like, he was actually getting his teammates involved and he was just sort of trying to keep them in the rhythm of the game while taking over when he needed to because they couldn't make shots. So he's sort of putting it on a dime and Covington missed two dunks down the stretch of the game. Like, he's putting these shots on a dime for some of these players who can't make anything and then he just sort of shrugged his shoulders, OK, I've got to hit another three threes in a row. So you just... It was one of the most amazing performances and Jokic matched him play for play and sort of shot for shot uh, down the yeah. other end. The difference was Jokic had a few teammates, uh, particularly Michael Porter Jr. and uh, yeah. Monte Morris. Yeah. And and uh, poor old Dame in Portland had no one. Yeah, so that was that was a lot of fun. That's the kind of the dopamine hit uh, sugar high of the playoff series, <laughs> yes. though, right, wasn't it? It was like, like these teams are just, you know, it was fireworks are going to go. Empty calories, watch. that's a good way to say it, right, where you got – Phoenix and LA kind of like, yeah, these teams, if they can survive this one, have some staying power. Similar, I think I felt the same about Milwaukee and Miami. If Miami could flip the switch, it just built, is built to built to last. But uh, but yeah, so it did 
um, to close off that question, did Terry Stotts get fired? Terry Stotts' ball had straight off, and uh, Terry Stotts has been like he did, so. didn't he? Yeah, so he's 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 gone. So yeah, a lot of a lot of change perhaps coming to Dame to Dame there. And again, um, would you consider the season a success for for either of those teams, Daz? Or did both oh. teams leave disappointed? How would you think? How would you characterize I, I think it? I Denver have got excuses. I mean, look, Denver looked like a, a, a genuine contender before Murray went down. Once Murray goes down, yeah, because I thought Aaron Gordon looked good in the role that you want Aaron Gordon to play. But once Murray goes down, you, you probably need a bit more from Aaron Gordon and he's not capable of providing it. Uh, Porter, I thought, looked really good. It's obviously a worry that his back was playing up again um, in the playoffs. And again, maybe they lent on him a little bit too much. Monte Morris played well. I mean, Barton is what he is at this point. I mean, if, if Murray doesn't go down, I mean, that's a, that's a knock him down, drag him out second round against the Suns, uh, assuming yeah. they don't finish yeah. with a higher seed uh, at that point. So I think Denver would say, look, we've got excuses. We've got, we had the, an MVP season for Jokic. That's fantastic for us. I think they, they'd look back on a pretty fondly, obviously a very disappointing way to end today getting swept and Jokic um, you know, being ejected the way he was. Portland, on the other hand, I mean, that, that's just a, a disaster for them because I think they thought they had uh, visions of going much further than the first round again. And that's been yet another first round exit. I mean, the only time they haven't been out of the first round is when they went to the Western Conference Finals and got swept by uh, the Kevin Durantless Warriors anyway um, in what was a you know, more competitive series maybe than the sweep indicated, but certainly not a series that you ever expected them to win or that they were ever in. Uh, as such, so yeah. bringing in Covington, and making some of the moves that they made. I mean, even the the Gary Trent move did that, that was a head scratcher to me. Um, bringing in Norm Powell, he didn't sort of do much. Now they got a question whether they re-sign him or not. So a lot of questions in the offseason. It just feels like something's got to give with this team. Certainly, stops is the first thing to give. Maybe they'll just think, well, let's let's see how a different coach comes in with the same roster because they're they're a bit hamstrung at the moment. I don't think there's any easy answers other than the off-talked about uh, the C.J. McCollum trade. But in, in, in essence, if you get rid of McCollum, you're probably just robbing Poo to pay Paul uh, to some extent, depending on who you're able to bring in uh, at that point. So a, yeah. a disappointment for Portland, I think, overall. Yeah, um, I think that's a, fair. A qualified success, if you like, um, to use my, some of my corporate language from back in the day, does. Uh, for for the Denver Nuggets. <laughs> so let's move to the second round. Now we've got, uh, so just to quickly give you the, the temperature check, obviously Phoenix have moved through to the Western Conference Finals. We've got Utah and, and the Clippers locked, uh, sorry, that's 2-1 at the moment to Utah. Game four of that series is tomorrow. That feels like it's going to go a seven-game series uh, at this stage. Uh, and, and I think it'll come down to the fact of whether Mike Conley can come back or not may be the deciding factor uh, in that series. So that, that one certainly feels like it's going to be really close. Philly-Atlanta, uh, that's, that's to me, felt like a series where two and a half quarters in, Philly worked out what they needed to do against Atlanta and hasn't really been close since after Atlanta ran out to a big lead and held on in game one. What do you Give me some quick takeaways from those two series and what you've seen of them before we move on to the, the next Bucks and have a bit more detailed breakdown of what's happened there. Yeah, Utah Clippers, again, a pretty high-quality basketball. Um, a really neat study in contrast. I love, love the study in contrast where Utah is a full system. Everyone has a role. They know exactly what that role is. They play their role every night. 
um, with the consistency of Phanastis Antetokounmpo in the last 12 seconds of a quarter. It's just harmonious, right? And like you bang on, they are, I think they can endure a loss like a Conley better than a lot because of that's the ensemble, ensembleness of that cast. Um, but you just, you see a team that's built to last. They may not have the upside, like they need Mitchell to be special, special, but that's a team whose system just makes sense. LAC, as I mentioned earlier, just looks like they're constantly tinkering and effort waxes and wanes and Kawhi waxes and wanes a bit. And he just, he can be supremely elite and just unstoppable, unguardable at the end of games. And then there's the games like games one and two are, yeah, he's good, but he's kind of like my Jason Tatum, which is like, does he really make people around him better? And I don't think, you know, I think that was a, it's a very fair rhetorical question, if not a kind of a qualified, really? Does he make his team better? Yeah, but does he take his, make his teammates better? Eh, not sure about that. So that's why I see the fascination between those two teams. So will the individual talent, ISO ball, crunch time execution by a guy who's won a couple titles in Kawhi, will that, will that win enough possessions and um, enough point differential against the system, right? Will Mitchell's shot selection be good enough in crunch time? Will Gobert be able to do enough and stay on the floor till the end of games, you know, with his somewhat offensive limitations, although his elite, elite sort of screen setting kind of popping everyone free on the perimeter for a team that just bloody lets it fly. Will Quinn Snyder push enough buttons and find enough offense that's not letting a, you know, the 55th and 56th three-pointer fly, you know, when they get into crunch time? So that for me is going to just be really, really interesting study in contrast. And I don't know. I, I think it's a pick em at this point. I know it's 2-1 Utah, but I could see, you know, Clippers getting their shit together. And I probably, at the moment, I lean slightly towards the Jazz, but I want to see how Mitchell comes back from the ankle and whether Conley can play. Uh, but I, I, I think the Suns go in as warm favourites, at least in my mind. Uh, for the Western Conference Finals. Probably warmer favourites against the Clippers than they are against uh, the Jazz because of the home court advantage, but still a lot like the Suns in that next series. Plus the rest. I think rest is going to be important. I think that well, might particularly favor... for Chris Paul, with the, the shoulder issue that he's had as well. That, 100%. That yeah. going to be exactly right. Although he's rest in general. Give, give Chris Paul and Monty, you know, Monty Williams a week to prepare because they'll be studying... Yeah. both teams right deeply you know so they have a week of preparation plus the rest plus the shoulder healing plus you know the moxie after coming off of their eight and two in the playoffs now just knocked out the mvp and lebron james and you know back-to-back rounds that, that confidence will be skyrocketing mm. so um yeah really really interesting stuff mate all right so let's go to the eastern conference now so as, as I mean, quickly on the on the Philly Atlanta series, I mean, do you see that the same as me? Philly seem like they've worked Atlanta out. Unless one of these guys, not named Trey Young in Atlanta, catch fire in this game, which could happen. I mean, Bogdanovich certainly um, could come out and, and have a massive game offensively, or Gallinari or Herder could come out and, and hit a heap of shots. Although they did that already uh, in Game Two, and it didn't didn't work for the for Atlanta. I mean, do you see that, that that sort of Philly have worked Atlanta out to the extent in this series? Yeah, I think the short answer is they have, and I think you know defense is going to great defense is going to be a good offense. Right? Atlanta's not a great offense; they're a good offense, but when your your best player is what five foot eleven, right, one hundred and eighty pounds or whatever Trey is, mm-hmm. like you know he can be. It can you can throw uh, impediments in his way, i.e. long rangey dudes like Tyvel and Ben and 
than the rest of it. So yeah, I think that's a five game series. Um, but if asking, answering my questions, I don't know if it needs tons of analysis for me, the fascinating thing more is as someone who has had torn meniscus in my life, that seems to be what a partially or a slightly torn or a small torn meniscus that Joel Embiid has. The fact that he only missed, I think a game, you know, and um, is back playing pretty big, pretty big minutes and performing and producing that for me is the biggest story is, you know, will he be able to keep going on a knee that could kind of create him significant pain at any moment? Yeah. So that for me is the big question. And I think back to the, the question of would, would Atlanta view this as a successful season? If they get knocked out in five, I think it'd be a resounding yes. Don't mm. you Des? Oh, where, you know, Trey's had his moment in the playoffs and they've got, what's his name? Deandre Hunter had a really nice start to a season before the injury. And he's, he's come back and getting some playoff minutes. The Bogdanovich looks like an absolute smart signing, you know, uh, Capella fit exactly. Like I thought, you know, Chris Paul and Aiton would fit the Eastern version of that of Trey young and Clint Capella, you know, he gets 15 and 15 every single night. You know um, I think that team is a nice team. They're, they're one player away. You know, they're probably one, they're a player away, but um, I think he'd be happy with that. Well, so, the thing you'd yeah, say too well, is they're a player away, but that player may already be on their roster and you see it through development rather than have to go out and get a free agent. That, that's point. what they would be thinking um, at this point. Because potentially the player away is DeAndre Hunter if he really takes a leap. Uh, or dare I say Cam Reddish comes out and plays better than what he has to this point in his career or something like that. So that that's where I think they might look at it and say, hopefully the player's already on our roster that takes us to the next level. Yeah, that's a good point. You never know. I, I don't think we saw much from Reddish, but Hunter might be that guy. You know, I don't know if he has, you know, could he become Mikael Bridges? Or could he become something more? We'll, we'll see. But um, I think if you're that fan base, you're pretty pumped, though, right? Just the way, you know, you got someone to bloody fill the stands and got some internal development. You've got some, you know, you got some hope there. So I think kudos to that franchise for I, I was definitely out on them. I thought this is just, a, this is just so random what they did in the off season. I just thought there's no way this is going to come together and then have a coaching change in mid season. So um, kudos to the steadying hand of, of Nate McMillan there and Trey having his moment in the garden. Um, but um, yeah, they're done. Anyway, I don't see them take another game off Philly as long as Embiid plays. If Embiid sits, you never know. You never know. They could, they could find um, maybe, you know, Philly's offense grinds to a halt without Joel and, Mm. You know they can they can get another victory, but yeah, I think I think it's a good season, but I think that's a maximum six game series there. All right, well, let's finish off days with the the Bucks Nets. So I was uh, I, I was sort of bullish on the Bucks heading in. I mean, I I picked the Nets to get through in this series, but even when the Nets when when the Nets lost hard and early, I thought it sort of tilted. If you had to stop that at that point, like Harden goes down forty three seconds into the series with the hamstring. If you pause it there and say to me, who do you think wins this series? I'd say, well, now it's a toss-up because you've got no James Harden. And then the Nets just trucked the Bucks in the first two games. And I think everyone was like, well, this series is a wash. The Bucks aren't good enough. The Nets are going to go through. And the Nets were up off 49 points in game two. Just a horrific performance by the Bucks, and, and a very good performance by the Nets, it needs to be said. But... I th- my view always is in the plus. Until a team wins on the other team's home floor, you know, everything's even. 
Like you've got you've got to win that game, and particularly obviously if you're the, the lower seed, you you absolutely have to win on the home, other team's home court to win the series. But two nil to me, okay. Let's see how they respond in game three before we make any definitive analysis. Despite what might have happened in the first two games, and of course we saw the Bucks come out, punch them in the nose in in the first quarter in game three, take a thirty to eleven lead, and then the Nets came back, took the lead. It looked over about five different times, does in game three. And somehow you looked up at the scoreboard at the end and the Bucks were in front. And that, to me, was the game where the Bucks had to grind it out, win ugly, just steal a game that you had no right winning. Now it's 2-1. Now you're right back in the series. And, of course, today they go out and win game four. Kyrie Irving uh, hurts his ankle. Certainly, to me, looks like he'll be out for game five. But we'll wait and see on that. What's been your thoughts on the series? I mean, how has your mood gone? Because I know you were pretty down after game two. I mean, were you willing to concede this thing down 2-0 or were you a little bit like me and, and sort of said, let's wait and see how the Bucks respond in Milwaukee? I was willing to concede the series before it started. I mean, and I mean that it's not, not enough like, you know, uh, a desperate, you know, Orlando Magic versus the Bucks sort of way. But, like, I just objectively, like most observers, we just look at those three players and like, yeah, they'll probably lose that series. If Boston, if Brooklyn just kind of, you know, shows up and does their thing, they'll probably lose it. But at the same time, I go, it's just tor- terrible luck. It's the bestest franchise, it's the best team they've had in, in this little, in this title run here. But they just got leapfrogged by a team of superstars. And so I was kind of emotionally resigned to the fact that, yeah, probably don't have the firepower to, to keep up with them for seven games. Um, I tell you what, the, yeah, I don't want to understate James Harden, but there's only so many basketballs on the court. And, you know, what we saw certainly validated my felt, my sensation about game one, game two is validation, is that when KD and Kyrie are cooking, forget it. Like, that is, that is a next to a humble team to defend, right? Your best hope is to truck them on, on the offensive boards, tire them out, get them in foul trouble, get them frustrated, keeping their body, keeping their grill, but that's the best you can hope for is just body them up, be physical, and truck them when you've got the ball and beat them up inside, yeah, and make them tired. That's your best hope against those two. And they didn't do any of those things in game two. Game one was absolutely winnable, and they just played dumb. They played dumb ball, lazy possessions. Giannis, I think, shot way too many threes in game one. So game one is a, a game that also the Bucks could have won. Game two was just on... I don't know what planet that game was from. Um, so I came into game three kind of going, I think I told you, emotionally hedged. And to see that rock fight, um, which was not, it was good defense by both teams and good effort, but it was mostly about really, really tight offense, both sides. And so, yeah, the Bucks were lucky, but they're also probably a little bit unlucky in game one, but, and they'll take it, right? So they ground, grinded it out. And Chris Middleton was fantastic in the final couple minutes of game three. So that was the Chris Middleton game. He basically saved them. Um, and then here we saw game four was, you know, Kyrie rolling an ankle and the Bucks kind of stomped him the rest of the way. So I think if Kyrie's on a 50-50 ankle and Harden's on a 50-50 hamstring, I now would say if I'm putting money on Vegas, I go, you know, they, Brooklyn's got the home court and two of the next three at home. But I go, it'd be hard to bet against a healthy Bucks team against Kevin Durant and that squad. I mean, that's... That's a worse squad than LeBron James with his squad, I'd argue. 
Joe Harris hasn't been great. DeAndre Jordan doesn't get on the floor. Nick Claxton's still young and does stupid things like wrap his arms around Giannis in the post and give away stupid fouls and grab his jersey and give stupid fouls. And Blake Griffin is volatile. And um, that team is, you know, uh, I think as one of the announcers said today, well, this is, well, I, I couldn't believe they said it because it's so, you know, pro big market is they said to the effect of, well, Brooklyn fans, this is, this is what it's like for most of the NBA. You've only got one superstar. Let's see how they <laughs> grind their way through it. I actually think it was Mark Jackson, mm. if I'm not mistaken. He's just kind of saying, well, this is here you are. You want to be a superstar, and this is what most of the league has to deal with, and here you go. What can you do with it? And I think that's going to be too big of a burden, um, to be honest, as I've seen Durant. He, just, he doesn't have the legs like he had three years ago. So he's still freakishly, freakishly elite, but he just can't. He can't get to all of his spots. He can't get to all of his spots and decision-make, you know, and he can't get to his spots and get decision-make, have guys perform and have him go back and have to do something like even running around and chase, you know, PJ Tucker to the corners and, and, you know, Brooke Lopez out to the three-point line and, you know, play, play defense against the, uh, the Bucks that seem to figure it out. Like they did in game four, they played terrific offense. Well, this today, is the so. worry too for the Nets. I mean, you're putting more and more pressure on, Kevin Durant. I mean, I was surprised he played as many minutes, to be honest with you. I, I, I thought Steve Nash probably should have just pulled him midway through the third and said, let's save you for game five because they were never yeah. winning that game today. And they ended up putting 40 plus minutes on him again. And it's like, this is a guy that hasn't held up himself physically in the last few years. And now you're basically asking him to put this pretty poor team outside of Kyrie and, and James Harden. And then when we're sitting there, this is what frustrates me. When, when, when Kyrie's cooking, yes, I mean, it's nice to wax lyrical about Bruce Brown and Blake Griffin and these guys. But we saw today, like, they're just, they are limited players. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's the reason why yeah. they've sort of had the careers that they've had. I mean, Blake Griffin obviously had a much better career, but Blake Griffin, not a, a well, you know, not, not a liked player in terms of, you know, clubs going and trying to sign him uh, prior to this. I think he was sort of on the scrap heap for most clubs, uh, but he's a he's a nice fit because if they get anything out of him, it's a bonus. Well, now they actually need to get something out of him, and you know uh, didn't didn't yeah. see much today. I mean, he got played off the court basically by Giannis, although maybe they were they were trying to save whatever they can of Blake Griffin for Game Five. I mean, it's a massive Game Five now. Uh, for both of those clubs. But oh, think, enormous. Yeah. I think if the Nets can squeak out game five, I think they win this series in seven because I think Kyrie will be back by then and you might even have James Harden by game seven. But if the, the Bucks can go in, which they should be able to do, and win game five uh, pretty comfortably then I think it's going to be over in game six uh, in Milwaukee. I think I think the Bucks can take care of business. The one thing I'd say about the Bucks is too, they they could not have played worse in those first two games. And really, they haven't shot well. I mean, they're shooting 22% from three the entire series. Now, part of that's down to Giannis just consistently coming in and chucking up these awful shots, which he's shooting at an 18% clip uh, across the series. But no one from the Bucks has shot the ball well. Well, I mean, Chris Middleton, 31% from three. Bryn Forbes, 23%. PJ Tucker, 12%, for goodness sakes. Like, no one shot the ball well, and yet here they are, 2-2, with the Nets and the Nets in injury injury trouble. So I kind of feel like it's a massive bullet dodged for the for the Bucks, but sometimes that's what you need when you're chasing a championship. 
Yeah, and the parallel even all through Bucksland is that this could, it, it, the parallels are there of when Toronto beat the Bucks in, in 2019, right? Two pretty comprehensive victories in, you know, in Milwaukee uh, against Toronto and then a, and a wacky, wacky, crazy, random luck filled on both sides, right? Game three that went into double overtime, if I'm not mistaken, which is very similar to this 86-83 rough fight that the Bucks had in game three. And if you, to win that game, to have your near-death experience does something to the psyche, right? Toronto had that near-death experience of going down 3-0 and survive. And boy, howdy, you're playing with house money nowadays, right? Mm. That's why I think the Bucks could emotionally have that boost because they've because they have survived that near-death experience. And um, today was, to be honest, they didn't have to play. They played very hard. It was a very good basketball game. But they had a big margin for error today, right? As you rightly said, they went by they went up by 19 or 20. Nash was about to empty the bench. Five and a half, six minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Brooklyn scored five quick points to get the lead from like 17 to 12. Nash put all the bench guys, <laughs> made, made them sit back down. Yeah. KD has to play four more, six more possessions or whatever, including getting hammered pretty hard and on the floor a couple times, as you said. And you know, lead went back to 17, and then he ultimately came out. So I think the the Nets season is hanging by a thread. It really is hard not to, to if I just remove my emotion from that series. Their their season's hanging by a thread. They they need Kyrie or or Kevin. I cannot see how that a Kevin Durant team. That for me is the only question. Is if he comes. So here's the big factor, right? If it's just Durant, no Kyrie, no Harden for Game Five, and Brooklyn wins, forget it. Forget it, right? <laughs> The Bucks are dead. Yeah, I think I just, you're going to see a very different game in Game 5. I think, I think it's going to be officiated completely different what today was. Uh, I, th- I think... Could be. You could see... It could be the type of game, Daz, where five minutes in, PJ Tucker and Yas have both got two fouls each, right? And that's that's going to be, I think, the leveller where I think the, the Nets are going to... The only chance they almost have is to put pressure on the referees to start calling some fouls, mm. you know, or, or call what they perceive to be fouls. And, and, you know, as soon as there's any sort of ticky touch stuff, they're going to be living at the line. And and on the other end, they might go, you know what, let's have a, let's send Giannis to the line 30 times, like we used to with Shaq <laughs> and the guy shooting 31% from the through throw line. So I, I think it's going to be one of those games where there's some weird stuff's going to happen. Even if Kyrie's not there, I don't think you're going to see any sort of, you know, the Nets are going to try and get this into a slow it down, half court game, go to the through throw line, you know, make it difficult, get the game in mud, don't let the Nets, uh, sorry, the Bucks get out and run it all, which is probably against the way the Nets probably thought they would want to play this series, but they're going to have to make some sort of an adjustment. And I really think that the, they're already, I mean, in, in the post-match press conference today, Steve Nash was talking about the, the officiating. I think there's going to be a big emphasis on trying to get some of those, you know, some, some early fouls called on PJ Tucker and Giannis. And if it doesn't happen then, and if the Bucks get out to a bit of a lead and there is no Kyrie, this team could, could fold the tent pretty quickly as well. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say, although... I... Yeah, I, I would agree that if the officiating tightens up, it'll definitely favor Brooklyn, no question. Especially, right, if um, Giannis continues to shoot 50% from the from the line, which he's 50%, suddenly done. So does they'd be happy if he'd be shooting 50%. He's shooting 
Fifty percent for the playoffs. Yeah, so thirty. percent for, for the series. And of course, James Harden's yeah, number one so role in the series pretty... has been counting to ten, while Giannis is at the free throw line. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. He was five for ten from today. You know, it's almost it's almost like yeah, kind of almost you'd almost be happy to take that at this Just point. Just quickly um, on Giannis, well, what have you made of Giannis's playoffs to this point? Because there's a bit of, there, there seems to be a bit of a narrative building up. That, that we're seeing the limitations of Giannis if Giannis is your best player. I mean, from a Bucks fan's point of view, how have you looked at his players so far and, and, and particularly within this series? And are there things he's doing? Obviously, you don't want to see him shooting as many threes, but are there certain areas of his game that you're a little bit concerned about how, how he's going about it? Or do you just think this is a, a bit of a difficult matchup for him? And to my quick point of view, I think the pressure's on him to try and attack the rim every single time, and he's doing it really well when he does it, but I don't care who you are. You can't attack the rim you know, 50 times in a game and, and, and think you're not going to tire at both ends. I just don't know where this is coming from, Daz, because I kind of go, he's he's shooting a higher field goal percentage in the series than Kevin Durant, right? This has not been an easy series. No. You know, game four, game four he went off for you know 33 and 14, right on 14 for 31 from the floor right and played phenomenal defense in 43 minutes and a grinding very difficult must win do or die game i go that got swept under the rug because chris middleton outplayed him middleton was 35 and 15 right and that in that 86 83 game they scored 68 of the 86 points it was a percentage of points scored by a duo in the nba playoff history right including countless games with kobe and shaq and and Scotty and, and Michael, etc. Right, so I kind of go. I don't get that narrative. If that is a narrative, and then today, well, he was sensational. And what's happening, right? He still does these the three pointers. That clearly is coaching, right? It clearly is. They're still setting him. You know, if it's wide open, you're going to have to let it fly. He only quote unquote took five today, but he was 34, 12 with three assists, right? A block, great defense, and 38 really, really efficient minutes, right? And he got into some early foul trouble, so he had to sit a bit with a couple of dodgy um, dodgy offensive foul calls, but he was a, a casual plus 29, Daz. Mm. So I go, he's, he, he is playing off ball. When he sets the screen, good things happen. When Giannis comes, right, because what he can do is he'll run down the court and seal, and they can if they can sprint down the court even off a made Brooklyn shot, he can seal really quickly, and you're in trouble. If he can't seal, he'll come up and set a screen for Middleton, and then you got Middleton, Giannis, pick and roll. What do you do? Right? You go over and, and, and stop Middleton, a 43% three-point shooter. You got Giannis rolling, and you got Giannis rolling with who's in the backside? Claxton, Jeff Green. You know, he's going he's gonna to beast you. Right, You go under it, and you got Chris Middleton, who's been phenomenal the last two games. And I go, the point, that's just one example. That's where Giannis has been fantastic, is, is in setting ball screens, is down in the post. They do a number of sets you know, with him in the post, and he loves that fadeaway. He's not great at it. He's good. That fadeaway baseline, beautiful jumper that he can sometimes get cooking. Um, then sometimes, Des, they let him trail, right? The Bucks will start some early action on the elbows, and then you got Giannis trailing, right? Trailing the trailing the play, again, not with the ball in his hand. And what happens if you can sense a seam anywhere, Drew or someone will flip the ball, whip it out to Giannis at the top of the key, and he'll just pound. Boom, he's Euro-stepping. He's doing his two-step layup thing. He's doing the spin move. He's getting you in all sorts of trouble. Or even better, he's going in and throwing it out to freaking P.J. Tucker, who drained three or four corner threes 
um, uh, most of the, if all of them assisted, right? I'm sure Giannis did one of them. So anyway, Giannis is playing, I think, optimized Giannis. Giannis has proved uh, to himself and probably to his franchise and his coach that they're probably not going to win a title if he's the initiator every single possession like he was kind of in that last two years in a world where it was Eric Bledsoe, right, um, instead of Drew Holiday. So I think he's it's an underrated story about how much he's changed his role, changed his mindset, and learned how to play off ball. When he, for years, the last three years, Daz was all he was doing was being the guy who attacked. So I think the narrative needs to be a, a smarter, more nuanced narrative. This guy is changing his game and learning how to play, which leads me to my final point, which is, um, and you would have heard the mismatch guys talking about it again today, right? In the NBA history, players almost, almost 100%, not quite, but it's almost certain you know when you're titled until you're 27 years old or older, right? This is Giannis learning how to play deep in the playoffs. How does he have to be? How does he have to think? How does he have to perform? What roles does he play at? What points and what times? What's his usage? Right? He's learning. And you can see him still learning, which is a little bit sad and scary because he can fuck it up. Right? But that's the probably why I'm probably still don't have total anxiety like I had against Toronto um, two years ago is I feel like this team will still be a really good fucking team next year. And they'll have a, a, a wide open title window again next year. And Giannis is actually getting better and diversifying his game. So that's a long way to answer your question, Daz. But I think some of that narrative fair, right? Hack a Giannis and he bricking an airballing three, um, bricking airballing free throws. That happens. That's happened to Shaq. That's happened to others. Yeah. That's a very fair and obvious, you know, flaw. But he does way more good things than worrying about his free throws. That doesn't really – 5 out of 10 night doesn't really worry me. It really doesn't. A 2 out of 10 night worries me, right? Mm. But something about, yeah, just 50 for 60%. You know, get one point. Keep that scoreboard ticking over. Get one point on that possession when they hack you, and, you know, we can probably survive. But um, oh, I think it's I a bit know. lazy analysis. I mean, I think because you see how effective he is when he's downhill and when he's in attack mode. And then people think, well, he should do that every time. And then they see him, you know, I mean, the threes, look, you know my thoughts on him taking threes. He should be banned from ever taking a three. I think they should fine him $50,000 of his contract every time he takes a three, unless it's at the end of the shot clock, because he's horrifically bad. But even the sort of mid-range jumpers and things like that you're seeing, and they're sort of, well, is he settling? Is, you know, and, and they're sort of breaking down some of the points per possession when they're getting him into certain plays. I mean, Zach Lowe's just written an article about that. And, uh, but I just think it's it's unsustainable to think that this guy's just going to be in attack mode and be able to attack off the dribble every single time. And to your point, we've seen how it's worked out the last two playoff series. So, but it does also show to me, I still feel like the players, the Bucks are a player short, and that player is that extra player with the, you know, can create his own shot. Um, although Drew looked pretty good today at times, creating his own shot. So maybe he's, you know, we just we just need to see a little bit better out of Drew from the offensive point of view, and the way Chris Middleton's shooting the ball has been fantastic as well. I mean, do you feel as if the Bucks are to win? The, the championship this year is this the series like if they get past the nets will you feel like that that's the biggest hurdle past and now we can we can do we can beat the sixes and beat the suns or wherever it might be that's in front of us from there um 
it'll probably feel like that if you say the if is they've won the title. Sure, I think it'll feel that way. But if Embiid is healthy, Daz, that is not. <laughs> that's a that's a, a pick'em series. Like the Giannis has done really well against them, but with a team like with their defenders, right? That is a very very high floor team. Philly's challenge will be scoring, right? Um, that will also be Milwaukee's challenge. So I I I, I think that's a if Embiid is he's a question without notice. He's a good yeah. one for you. So if you're starting a franchise today. Who would you take with it? Would you take Giannis head of Embiid as, as your first pick for that franchise? Yeah, of course you would, right? Just be, I mean, just probably simple endurance and health would still be your first. Well, let's say health uh, aside. Let, let's, let's, let's make complicated further. Let's, let's assume health. They're both going to be healthy for the, for the remainder of their career, for the next five years even. Who, who do you choose? Yeah, I'd probably still go in Giannis uh, just because of he can – I think more value goes to guys who can do more things on the floor. And oh, he exactly. I think he more. brings a little bit more to the table, doesn't he? Yeah. And I, and I, you know, Joel is his own style guy, but I just think, I think Giannis is going to grow into a pretty amazing leader. He's an amazing role model, but is he a leader? You know, he's, he's getting there. Um, that's why I think his, his traits will be not quite Dame like, you know, but he, you will always love playing with Giannis. Giannis led teams will be, tight locker rooms, right? Or I don't know that... I'm not saying that Joel is a bad guy, but I think Giannis is pretty in elite company there, you know, of the with the Danes of the world or the what might be like the Jalen Browns of the world to be, you know, just these amazing humans who you're just not going to have conflict with. Like, that, that counts for something if you're talking about, you know, investing 200 or $300 million. Like, that for me counts. Well, I think so, the interesting a, thing about that is it is a closer argument than what it was probably two, three years ago. Oh, sure. A Even a year ago. To, yeah, a massive credit to Embiid and, and what he's able to do. And I think, you know, us saying Giannis, I think that might even be an unpopular this uh, opinion within the sort of NBA media circles. And part of that, I think, is, is a little bit of a big market bias towards, towards Philly. But it's also, again, showing just how far Joel Embiid's come uh, in the past year. Credit to him. Yeah, and I think he's, he's gotten fitter. There's no question. He looks a bit lighter, doesn't he, this season? Mm. And up until this this knee thing, which could happen to anybody, really. Um, yeah, he's been playing big minutes as well. Um, I think by most measures, his defense has kind of taken a little bit of a step back, but he's still beast. Um, was he was he MVP finalist with Curry? Yes, it was, a, it was... Um, yeah. I think the MVP finalist were Jokic... Uh, Curry, uh, Embiid, uh, LeBron, and Derek Rose. <laughs> Someone voted for him. That's right. No, Some... it was a, it was an aggregated fan vote. The apparently NBA Twitter melted oh. down because Derek Rose got a first place vote, but then they realised there was an aggregated fan vote, which oh, I don't, I still don't true. quite understand how Derek Rose gets in there, but. Uh, there must be some some Derrick Rose stands out there. I'll, I'll say well, this for Derrick Rose. He was the next best player in the first round of the playoffs. But remember, he's super popular in China. That's true. Like his, <laughs> Right? No, he is. He's super well, from popular that MVP in there. I forget season. why. So, well, I think from yeah. the MVP season, and the, um, I'm not sure if he just went over there then and, and uh, marketed himself. And... Did he do a rehab? St- I think it was shoes. It was a shoe or something that mm. for some reason 
went like wildfire and he just yeah kind of embraced the Chinese market. But uh, yeah, but you know, hat, hat tip to Embiid. You know, if you're Philadelphia, you, you know, get, kind of you give some credit to Daryl Morey, who you know made the one kind of you know, small to medium sized move getting Seth Curry, which is looking like a master stroke, both for him and a disaster for Dallas. Mm. You know, but that, he's been a huge, hugely important for their playoffs. He and Tobias Harris both as you've rightly pointed out, as Ben Simmons tends to continues to be a shrinking violet. And I go, that's such as life in NBA narratives, dads, as Giannis gets criticized for taking threes, Ben Simmons gets criticized for not. What do you do? <laughs> right. So I go, F all y'all just win. Right. So just, you know, <laughs> you know, just, just win baby. But yeah, um, credit to Maury and the Sixers for, you know, deserved the one seed and mm. look like going to, you know, they earned this of all the years the Bucks didn't get the one seed. Man, this would have been a good year to have it. I think they would have stomped Atlanta without much um, effort yeah. as well, the way, the way Philly is. Hmm. Um, but such is life, you know, it's the way the ball bounces. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think Philly's playing, is feeling pretty good. And we'll, we'll, I have no idea. Let's get through, let's get through the, the Brooklyn series first. And I guess let's see how Joel's health goes. And as you can see, right, one twisted ankle can turn a whole series. So that's right. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll look to forward to okay, seeing the rest of the playoffs with you, mate. So we'll uh, we'll try and touch base again, hopefully next weekend or sometime soon, and we'll see how the the second round has panned out. And hopefully, we're talking about the Buck Sixers um, Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, Buck Sixers, Jazz Suns is Jazz kind Suns, of Suns. That would be nice. Wouldn't everyone's it? wish list, isn't it? Yeah, Actually, even yeah. better, Bucks Hawks, Jazz Suns. <laughs> Yeah, something <laughs> happens. Yeah, Joel has a non-serious injury, and Trey goes forty-five yeah. points every night. You never know, but uh, yeah, it'll be fun. All right, buddy. Okay, good mate. Chat. Good to talk to you. Take care, pal. Thanks, bye bye. Bye. Took the charge, and there was no foul call.